The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. The truth is that we are in a climate emergency. We have less than 10 years to make substantial changes to our society and way of life and our economy. I want to stress from the outset that this pandemic is far from over. Those who have never fought for the colours they fly should be careful about criticising those who have. Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Caroline Hepkin. Good afternoon, I'm Ewan Potts. Boris Johnson is continuing to fight a mounting backlash over his attempt to overhaul the disciplinary process for MPs. He'd sought to protect his colleague, former Minister Owen Paterson, who's found guilty of paid advocacy on behalf of two companies. Parliament is expected to hold an emergency debate on the issue today, but it's not yet clear if the Prime Minister will attend. Well, the Liberal Democrats' chief whip, Wendy Chamberlain, who secured that emergency debate on parliamentary standards, wants a full public inquiry into lobbying. She says it's not just about Patterson, but also the awarding of COVID contracts, holidays and the refurbishment of number 10. What the public are hearing at the moment is Conservative sleaze again, and that actually bears not well on any MP from any party. So that's why we need to do the work on a constant, ongoing basis to ensure that standards and processes are reflective of the standards we should be held to. Well, Johnson's approval rating has slumped to a record low as the allegations of Tory sleaze resurfaced. That's according to an opinion poll for the Observer newspaper. Meanwhile, Labour leader Keir Starmer has called for the Prime Minister to apologise to the country for his handling of the Paterson row and he, that he should confirm the former minister will not be put forward for a peerage. Well, joining us now is Tamanjit Singh Desi, who is Labour MP for Slough, also the Shadow Rail Minister. Tamanjit, welcome to the programme. Thanks so much for being with us. Um, firstly, can I ask you what the point is of the Labour leader asking for an apology from the Prime Minister? Because if you take that view, surely Labour should be making sure that the rules are much tougher, scrutinising, lobbying much more. Well, what's the point of apologising? Well, the apology is a start, but as uh, many of us on the Labour benches have asked, is that senior people, and that's the Prime Minister, the Leader of the House, Jacob Rees-Mogg, and others need to be considering their position because the Conservative Party, at at this point in time, the government is overflowing with sleaze and corruption. We're, We're back to the days of the 1990s where such stories were just continuous one after another. And we've seen uh, not just this Owen Patterson saga, but uh, recently it's also been uh, uncovered that uh, if you manage to pay three million odd pounds to the Conservative Party, if uh, you get appointed as one of the uh, vice treasurers, and thereafter you get uh, a peerage appointed to the House of Lords. These sort of things, it's just absolutely uh, diabolical that we are faced with this day in, day out. And when I was yeah, that, first elected... a newspaper to allegation, Karen, though, isn't it? That's a newspaper allegation and investigation um, around the peerages issue. 
Well, uh, in terms of that peerage issue, uh, I think the facts speak for themselves in that they have all been awarded peerages. Uh, And this isn't the first time that we've had cash for peerages. Uh, I think if we look at uh, what you were referring to in terms of the standards, well, look, we had a consensus beforehand since 1995 uh, a House of Commons Standards Commissioner was appointed, a, a highly respected individual, apolitical, and then that was strengthened further because by 2013, we had managed to set up uh, the Individual Standards Committee, and that is cross-party. And let us not forget that when they deliberated, when the, the Commissioner uh, put forward her report, and then thereafter the Standards Committee looked at it, four of those members were actually Conservative. And the Standards Committee voted unanimously, not by a majority decision, but unanimously on a cross-party basis that what Owen Patterson had done was uh, tantamount to uh, corruption, that uh, he he had been engaged in paid lobbying. He had been paid well over half a million pounds. I mean, the likes of myself, I haven't even got a second job, let alone uh, being a, a paid lobbyist. So I just cannot understand how these individuals whom being an MP should be a full-time role because that is what they have been elected to do, to serve their constituents. And yet they are too busy with their noses in the trough and uh, lining their own pockets. And this has to stop. On that issue, is it time to to ban MPs from having second jobs? Well, look, I don't have a second job, but I know that there are some for whom, whether they're doctors or they're solicitors, so they need to do a small amount of work in order to keep their qualifications. I can understand that perspective because politics itself is uh, is brutal in the sense that one minute you could be an MP at the next election, you could be out of a job. So for those individuals who have to maintain their qualifications, either as a chartered surveyor or as a solicitor or as a doctor or nurse, I could understand in those exceptional circumstances. But as I said, I don't have a second job and I don't think that uh, others uh, will need to be involved in lobbying in particular. We need to strengthen these rules. Uh, and it, it's it's absolutely ridiculous that the Leader of the House and the Prime Minister forced Tory MPs, they corralled them, they prodded them like some sort of helpless sheep. Through that division lobby, 250 of them voted to let off one of their mates. Uh, and this is just uh, like the old boys network that they've got going on that people make mistakes, not just make mistakes, they, uh, in essence, are corrupting our democracy and they need to be held to account. Tan, even those in favour of oversight um, of MPs say that actually the Standards Committee shouldn't be made up of MPs, it shouldn't be MPs marking each other, puts them in a very difficult situation, that it should actually just be judges or lawyers at the very least. That's what the independent commissioner is for. That person who is undertaking but the, the independent commissioner does fun- fulfills many roles in the sense that they, she at the moment, do the investigating and the reporting and the advice. I.e., she has many hats, and that that should maybe not be that way. That there should be perhaps independent lawyers doing the investigations, and then that those functions should be separated out, basically. Well, look, Karen, I think we just need to make sure that we're all in favour of reforms, but let us not be cajoled by the Conservative government. I know they've, had their, they've been wheeling their ministers out to say that, oh, look, um, everybody needs to have the right of an appeal. It needs to be independent. And what I'm saying is that the process at the moment, it might not be perfect, 
but it is independent. And ultimately, parliamentarians, when they look on a cross-party basis, if they are taking a decision based on what other civil servants or what other independently appointed commissioners, that could be a commissioner, it could be a judge, it could be uh, whoever uh, is thought is above reproach, then in essence, there is an appeals mechanism within the process. But it's clearly not working. If you get a case like this, if if one pursues that uh, line, uh, you know, if you can get this kind of problem arising, surely the, the current status quo doesn't work. Current system was working and people had been weeded out. Unfortunately, what Boris Johnson and Jacob Rees-Mogg and others decided is that they wanted to rip up the process in order to save their friend Owen Patterson. And they wanted to rip up the process in the middle of uh, an investigation when somebody had been found guilty. And let us not forget that what, what the sort of tactics they used was that to Tory MPs, they said that, oh, look, um, if you vote against the government line, the three-line whip, then we will take away funding from your constituency. So let's just step back and, and think what, uh, how they try to rip up the rules that if you have a Tory MP and uh, they were considering of taking a stand against corruption, then Boris Johnson and this Tory government would have taken money away from your schools or your hospitals, and that's what we should not be allowing to happen. So we have a functioning system, uh, and that that's... Uh, you know, we can tweak it, we can strengthen it, and that's what uh, uh, Keir Starmer has also said, that if there is a Labour government, that we would have uh, an office of value for money on behalf of taxpayers, as well as an anti-corruption commission, uh, and that can ensure that there is far greater transparency on how your hard-earned money uh, is spent holding people like me, uh, and, and more importantly, ministers, to account. Um, Claudia Webb, the former Labour MP for Leicester East, recently convicted uh, of harassment. Sh- should she uh, stand down from her seat? Well, look, the Labour Party have already been clear on that. Uh, she uh, has had the whip removed, and I know that uh, she is now considering an appeal. So I think we are all waiting on the findings of, of that appeal. But that's you know the Labour Party has been very very firm in its stance. Okay, so that uh, on MPs' conduct then. Okay, let's move on to your other hat, as it were, Shadow Rail Minister. In the spring quarter, which we now have data for, rail use in Great Britain was still at just 42% of pre-pandemic levels. Do we need to take a good look at services that we are running, maybe fewer rush hour trains? I mean, if a business slumps by 60% for this prolonged period, a massive rethink is needed, surely? I agree that COVID has had a devastating impact on our rail network. Uh, But thankfully, week on week, the capacity is increasing. Uh, And I know that previously it was uh, at around 50%. uh, But I also understand from recent uh, reports from last week that in certain areas it is now at 60 or even 70% uh, of pre-pandemic capacity. So what uh, I, I think is that We need to continue to invest in our own. We need to take a long-term approach because while there is a short-term slump, uh, which uh, obviously is gradually the situation is recovering, we've got to ensure that in in the week of COP26 that rail should be front and centre of government plans to decarbonise and reach net zero. And that's why as Shadow Rail Minister, I have consistently been calling that we for a rolling programme of electrification, 
Uh, and the government itself has promised that by 2040 they want to remove all diesel trains from our network. But how can we achieve that if we are not engaging in that rolling program of electrification, especially at a time when only 38% of our network is electrified? And if we compare that to our European counterparts, wherein the the majority of their networks have actually okay. been electrified, uh, then we, we need to play catch-up and we need to play, uh, play catch-up fast. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. Let's take a look at what else is making news in the world of politics today. Former US President Barack Obama is due to speak at COP26 today, which is focused on a global carbon market this week. Tens of thousands of protesters marched through the centre of Glasgow at the weekend, urging politicians and business leaders to do more to stem global warming. There's been some progress so far, even as China, the world's top polluter, stayed on the sidelines. But, say the protesters, not enough is being done to keep global temperatures from rising by one and a half degrees. And now the Defence Secretary says that the army is woefully behind the rest of the public sector in enabling women to make the most of their careers. Ben Wallace is meeting senior army leaders to discuss culture and discipline. This after a report into the bullying and sexual harassment of women in the armed forces that was led by Tory MP and former soldier Sarah Atherton found that almost two thirds of women had experienced bullying, sexual harassment and discrimination while serving in the army. Well, transatlantic travel opens today, as we've been reporting on Bloomberg, and fully vaccinated travellers from Europe and more than 30 countries, including China, Brazil and India, are finally now allowed to visit the US after more than 18 months. The lifting of the travel ban is vital for the UK's long-haul airlines, airports and travel firms, which have been hit hard hard by the pandemic. Uh, pre the virus, 3.8 million Brits visited the UK every year. It's a very, very important market. Virgin Atlantic CEO Shai Weiss told Bloomberg the airline will only consider a flights from Gatwick once its Heathrow hub is back to normal levels. British Airways Chief Executive Sean Doyle said that the reopening of the US borders was a moment to celebrate after more than 600 days of separation. Well, let's discuss this and a few other issues with Sean Tipton, spokesperson for ABTA, the Association of British Travel Agents. Sean, thanks for joining us today. Um, You surveyed 2,000 UK consumers uh, and you found out that the US is second only to Spain in foreign destinations that holidaymakers um, say they plan to visit. This is pretty important for the industry, isn't it? It's massive. It really is. I mean, actually, in a normal year, USA is generally the fourth most popular choice. I think the reason why it's shut up is just as simply because people haven't been able to get away from us two years. And the USA, because it's a long haul destination, is is a place that people go to, let's say, every five years, something like that. But because they've been restricted, that's why it's shut up. But yes, it's incredibly important. Um, from a leisure perspective, we see about three million Brits going to the USA in a normal year. And the vast majority of those go to either New York or Florida. And certainly from a package holiday perspective, that's mostly who I represent, Florida is incredibly important. So good news. I think initially what we're going to see 
see, though, and I think that's certainly being reflected by the interviews I've been hearing this morning, is that um, most of the people travelling out at the moment are going, not so much on holiday, they're going back to visit their friends and family that they haven't seen for so long. And also, I think there are going to be a lot of business people on those flights as well, because that's part of the reason why these routes are so profitable. It's the business community flying over to America. So, so good news all around, really. Um, and yeah, okay. financially, it's very important. But I said, as I said, I think the connectivity issues here with the USA even more important. Yeah, um, the US is opening uh, to more than 30 countries today. So it's the UK, but also Europe and uh, other parts of the world, China and India. The rules, yeah. just the basics for us, Sean, the rules don't sound too onerous, but, but it's mainly, you know, if you're fully vaccinated, you can get there, right? Exactly. exactly. If you're fully vaccinated or, again, if you're travelling with your children, if they're under 18, um, then, yeah, that's fine. Fully vaccinated or children under 18, you can go. But having said that, it's not a total free-for-all. You do still need to have a test three days before you depart, and that's a lateral flow test, which is good because they're nowhere near as expensive as PCR tests. And another one, uh, no later than three to five days on arrival in the USA. So it's not totally, you know, everything back to normal. But again, the but fact that those tests have lateral process are so much cheaper and more convenient, I don't think that's going to put too many people off. And I, I've come back from Greece not so long ago. I got my test for 20 quid, was mm. PCR test. And I think I saw how much they were costing, hundreds of pounds in some cases. Mm. So, Is um, transatlantic travel ever going to be back to, to what it was? I appreciate this is not, you don't represent yeah. the, the, the business sure. flyers, but um, business travel is not going to come back, is it, anytime soon? Yeah. I think it, it's not going to go back to the same kind of levels, you and I think that's pretty clear. I mean, talking to travel management companies is what we call business travel agencies. And they've said that they don't expect business to go to probably ever go back to quite the same levels. We saw pre-pandemic because people have been used to doing business on Zoom, etc. But having said that, at the same time, the business community is very concerned about the fact that because they haven't been able to have face-to-face meetings, that it's actually impacted on their ability to transact business. So it's going to be a mixed picture. So maybe not back to the same levels, but that doesn't change the fact there are a lot of business people who haven't been able to get away to their most important destination, which is the USA, and be very keen on doing so. Okay. Um, What about... uh in terms of taxes and, and the whole kind of green agenda that the, the yeah. UK has. And we're still in the middle of COP26, the climate summit in uh-huh. Glasgow. There was a cut to domestic air passenger duty during um, the budget announced by Rishi yeah. Sunak, an increase to the international rate. Is that the right decision, given the UK's green goals? Well, I think the reason why they've cut the domestic rate was when we're in the EU, I mean, APD is a departure tax. So mm. strictly speaking, if you were flying from London, you were departing from an EU destination. If you're flying back from Edinburgh, once more, you were departing from an EU destination. That's why you were charged twice on domestic flights. So that was just the nice way to get rid of that anomaly because we're no longer within the EU. But, but yeah, the message in general about putting up taxation on this is extremely long-haul flights, not the best for us because we're still, you know, we've been through 18 months of severely restricted, actually non-existent business. So that's something that makes people think, OK, it's going to be cost us more money to fly. And I think the other issue as well for long-haul flights is APD. It came in, I think it was 1994, Ken Clark introduced it. And he was very honest about it at the time. He just said it was a nice little earner, nice way to earn some money. And successive governments over that period have raised it considerably. I think the current figure in a normal year is about £3.2 billion. And we're one of the very few countries in the world that actually does tax flights in that way. The problem is, though, um, if you look at it, if if it's a green tax, it doesn't mean necessarily people will stop flying. They might just choose not to fly via the UK. And we've seen that already during the pandemic, that Heathrow has lost immense amounts of traffic to 
Frankfurt, Amsterdam Schiphol Airport, Paris. We've always said that. If you heavily tax in one destination, the UK, people will not necessarily stop flying. They might just choose to fly somewhere else and via somewhere else, which is not good for the UK economy. So we, what we do think, I mean, yeah. we're not totally, we don't deny, obviously, that flying contributes to carbon emissions. Of course it does. But what we need to say, see, and if you're going to tax aviation in the way they're doing it, that tax needs to be used to help the aviation industry reduce its emissions by investing in cleaner fuels, encourage them, airlines to get newer aircraft, which are much more fuel efficient. And if you look moving forward, there are some very interesting developments in terms of new battery technology, etc., which will really, really massively help the industry to reduce its carbon emissions rather than just having a blunt approach of don't fly. Because we've seen the economic damage that has caused, not just to the UK, but also to many developing nations, which are really heavily reliant on British tourists visiting. Yeah, on, on that on that subject, we know that air travel is is the yeah. fastest growing source of the fastest growing major source of carbon emissions. Is it okay for people worried about their carbon footprint to keep on flying? Is it okay to take a couple of holidays? Yeah. Away? Well, I think if you look at you know where, where the growth is, it's not so much within Europe. I think we're getting to a stage where we're almost plateauing, really. It's in other parts of the world where that's uh, particularly China. That's where the growth was coming. So I think it's more important that we look at ways of reducing, well, I'm going to say don't fly at all, because I said that the economic impacts on that are immense, is just to look at other ways we as an industry can reduce our emissions. And we're doing precisely that. I was at, uh, we had a convention not so long ago, um, which we normally take overseas. This year we had it in the UK for not, not so much for in terms of carbon emissions, it's just purely about the pandemic. And so many people there were saying they felt a bit, not so much the greed, but that the people, you know, there was not sufficient recognition of all the work that the aviation industry is doing to reduce its carbon emissions. And in fact, taking much more seriously than other industries. So, Tony, so moving forward, yeah, of course, we've got to do more and we will be doing more. But simply stopping flying, I'm not so sure if that's going to be a practical option for many. And also, certainly if you want to go on holiday, it's all very well, well saying get the train. But if you live in Newcastle, getting the train to Mallorca just simply isn't viable. Yeah. What about getting the train, uh, you know, to, I don't know, Skegness or, or Cornwall or Devon like, or like, any of the UK okay. destinations? I mean, sure, yeah. it, it does feel a bit like there's the, the last couple of summers have been a bit of a revolution mm-hmm. in terms of domestic uh, trips here in the UK. Well, I, I, well I, I've been saying for many, many years in this job that, um, and this is certainly something we see as an industry, we don't see ourselves sending overseas holidays as in competition with domestic holidays. They're complementary. And what you did see over the summer <clears throat> when there was a massive increase in demand for domestic breaks, mm. what happened? The prices went through the roof. The infrastructure creaked. It just couldn't handle the amount of people that were wanting to travel. So whereas in any normal year where people also have the option of going overseas, it keeps the prices don't shoot up quite so drastically. The beaches aren't so crowded. So no, we're, we're a small, crowded island. I don't think we can all take domestic breaks. And there would have been a lot of people who simply didn't have any holidays at all. And why was that? Because they were so expensive, they couldn't afford it. So I think moving forward, we, we need to look at that. There's holidays, I think, very clearly, I mean, often described as a luxury. I don't think they're a luxury. I think they're an essential. And particularly if you've been through some very stressful times, you need a break. And everybody having a holiday in the UK just simply isn't an option. And Sean, just briefly, what are things like for your members at the moment? When we last spoke, you said the industry was in a really bad place. Are things looking better for your members? Well, it's difficult, isn't it? We're trying to be optimistic because obviously we are seeing restrictions beginning to lift. People are starting to travel again in more significant numbers, but we still have had 18 months 
a very limited to zero business. But but we're a resilient bunch. So I know looking forward, I've spoken to quite a few travel agents and tour operators, and they're, 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 you know, they have to be optimistic, you know, because they need to encourage people to travel. But being pretty tough. So we still need a bit of help from the government. I mean, we've said repeatedly, you've given targeted assistance to other industries, but not to ours when we've been the worst affected. So we haven't totally given up on that. It was nice to see the 50% business rate relief, but that's not obviously just for us, but certainly it will help some of our members. But mm. it would be good if we had a bit more money as well. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.